last several weeks I've been talking about how to know for sure that you have eternal life. And uh, I, I really hope that uh, you took a little bit of time, a lot of time to think about that and to pray about it. Uh, every once in a while it's a good thing, even if we know for sure that we're saved and, we, and we're confident of that. It's still a good thing periodically to, to take a look in the mirror and say, is what's supposed to be happening, happening? And uh, that's what we've spent our time on in these last five weeks, how to know for sure that I have eternal life. But you know, Paul says in Romans chapter, one, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, that by faith we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we now stand. And in essence, what he's saying is that experience of being justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, forgiven and cleansed of sin, and being able to stand in the presence of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ Himself, being completely forgiven, and being born again is simply the beginning. It's not the end, it's the starting point. Our spiritual life begins then. And we are born again in the Spirit, just like a baby is born in the flesh. Uh, we're infants when we come to faith in Christ. And it's important, therefore, that we grow and begin to develop uh, spiritually so that we come to maturity in the spiritual realm. That does not happen overnight, just like a child doesn't grow up overnight. Uh, it takes a while in the Christian life. But there should be markers along the way that we can uh, stop and look at and say, okay, now I'm a, now I'm a young person in the faith. Now I'm coming into adulthood. Now I'm mature in the faith. The Bible actually gives us evaluations for those stages as well. And we're not intended to stay infants our whole life. We're intended to grow up in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4. John talks about this in his first letter. Um, it's mentioned in other places in Scripture about those stages of development along the way. And so I want to take the next several weeks and share with you uh, the keys of spiritual development. Now when I talk about the keys of spiritual development, I'm going to be sharing with you things uh, that are essential in your spiritual life and mine in order to grow. And I want to make two comments about that that are very important. One is, if you follow all of these keys or principles of spiritual development, it is possible to still not grow into maturity. Some people merely perfunctorily go through the motions. They read their Bible, they pray, they uh, come to church, they do other things, uh, kind of like they're marking off the boxes on a checklist. But because their hearts are not open to the Holy Spirit, 
and they're not uh, teachable and humble and moldable to where they can benefit from those um, exercises, if you please, they don't grow. It is necessary to, cu- to couple the keys of spiritual development with an openness to God to be at work in your life to develop spiritual maturity. The process of transforming us and making us look like Christ belongs to the work of God. And it's important that we be open to His work. On the other hand, I can guarantee you that if you do not employ these keys of spiritual development, you will never come to maturity. It is not possible to grow in Christ if you ignore the things that I'm going to be sharing with you over the next several weeks. You will always be an infant. And Paul describes infancy in Ephesians 4 as those who are tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of teaching. Whatever the popular notions are catches their fancy. They never settle down. They never get it right. They're just tossed back and forth like a ship with no rudder and no sail. They're adrift uh, in the waves. And so it is important that we employ, by the grace of God, the keys of spiritual development. One of those keys is an affection for and an immersion in the Word of God. Peter says, desire the pure milk of the Word that you can grow by it. He's talking about those who are spiritual infants. You need milk. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, though, he says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. In other words, there's a measurable span of time over which maturity should occur. And by this time, you ought to be teachers, but I have to give you milk again and not meat because you're not able to partake of solid food. Don't ever try giving a baby a bite of steak. That's not going to work. And hopefully you're skilled in infant CPR if you make that effort, because you're probably going to need it. And Paul says that's the kind of condition you're in. I can't give you solid food because you'd choke on it. I have to give you milk. And so the Bible itself is represented as both the milk and the meat. And it speaks to us of the truth that the Scripture provides for us an inexhaustible supply of wisdom and teaching. You can never get to the bottom of it. There's always something to learn in the Scriptures. There's always some new facet of truth that God wants to bring us into Uh, that we have not seen before. And I can tell you after preaching for 40 years 
and studying the Scriptures more than that, that I learn something new all the time. I'm constantly discovering new things and learning new insight into the Word of God. Some of it is just really cool, and some of it is life-changing. But there's always something fresh. Uh, You can never exhaust it. And so the Word of God becomes for us the source of that spiritual food. The passage in Scripture that... uh, uh, scholars call the locus classicus. That means it's the classical location for the teaching about divine inspiration is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes to Timothy, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for, for teaching. That's what the word doctrine means. For teaching, for correction, for reproof for training in righteousness, that the man of God or the person of God might be uh, thoroughly equipped and adequate for every work of life, every good work, it says. That passage tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. And I want to spend just a few minutes this morning talking about that word inspiration because it's a very important word. In the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, the word inspiration, that's translated inspiration, is only used here. It occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It's the word theopneustos, which is a combination of the word for God, theos, and Numos, the word for breath or breathing. It means literally God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. We use the word inspiration like that. We use it in other ways as well. We talk about uh, someone was inspired by what they saw to, to go and paint a picture or to write a story, or whatever. Uh, Or they were inspired to invent something uh, by something they saw at the Museum of Science and Industry. We, We use that word inspiration to talk about an idea that creates motivation. But we also use that word in the literal sense. We talk about inspiration and expiration. I was at the doctor's the other day. It reminded me. He told me, take a deep breath in and blow it out and hold it out. And he listened a long time. <laughs> and pretty soon you're going to have to do CPR if you don't let me breathe here. But we use that word inspiration in that literal sense of drawing in the breath. And Paul is actually saying that all Scripture is breathed by God, by His Spirit, into the very words of Scripture. If you want to know what inspiration means exactly, 2 Peter 1, 20-21 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, 
But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Did you catch that important ingredients in the process? They were not moved by an act of human will. But they were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak from God. Inspiration is that process where the writers of Scripture were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak and to record the words of God. Now, those of us who believe in verbal plenary inspiration have been accused of believing in sort of a a mechanical dictation. Uh, God uh, said to Paul, they surmise, uh, take a seat and take a letter. And he started dictating, and Paul started writing down what he heard. That's not what we mean by inspiration. It's obvious in Scripture that the different biblical writers have different styles, they have different vocabularies, uh, they have, uh, you know, uh, different ways of expressing themselves. It's inconceivable that God would inspire someone to write a word they didn't know the definition of. If you can imagine that, I can't. They used the words that they knew, so consequently you have John, who was an Aramaic speaker, predominantly writing in Greek, and his Greek is very simple, although his thoughts are very profound. When you read John's Gospel and his letters, uh, they're, they're rich and deep in meaning. Um, and yet others have a much more advanced vocabulary, like Paul, for example, who was very well educated, uh, not only in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, but in Greek literature and the culture of his day. So we're not saying that God overrode the personality or took over the vocabulary or somehow mechanically dictated to these writers But what we are saying is that as they wrote, he breathed out upon the writing in such a way that the words they wrote down were the very words of God himself. That there was no wrong word included. That there was no misdirection. In fact, it's very obvious as you study the New Testament that Jesus and other writers of the New Testament believe that inspiration applied to the very words of Scripture. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm in my second point now, if you're following the outline, all Scripture is inspired by God. First of all, now we're looking at the question, Scripture, what is Scripture? All Scripture is inspired by God. You have to realize that in the New Testament, when they used the word Scripture, they were referring to what we call the Old Testament. That becomes very obvious once you realize the New Testament was in the process of being written. It hadn't been written yet. It was was in process. 
But what the writers of the New Testament recognized is that the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, were the words of God. Jesus testifies to this in the Sermon on the Mount when He says in Matthew 5, 17 or 18, Not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. It's kind of important to know what Jesus meant when He referred to the law. The Jews in their, and I'm going to call it the Old Testament canon, they don't call it that, you understand, because they don't have a New Testament, so there isn't an old one. It is the canon of Scripture. And it's divided into three main divisions, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the law are the first five books of Moses. And the prophets are predominantly what we would call the prophets. And the writings are some of the historical books like Chronicles, Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, some of those kinds of books. So they have three divisions. When Jesus said, not the smallest letter or least stroke of a pen will pass away or disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He was referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he was underscoring the fact that the tiniest, most minuscule marks were inspired by God. In Hebrew, you have what's kind of like an accent mark. There are dots or lines over a letter or little marks underneath the letter. And those particular markings uh, define those letters. And Jesus was saying, it's the equivalent of dotting our I or crossing our T. Jesus was saying not a single dot or cross of a T will pass away or disappear until everything from Genesis through Deuteronomy has been fulfilled. Now, he was not necessarily excluding the prophets and the writings, but he was including the first five books of the Scripture. You know, those are the books that give people the most trouble. They're the ones that they stumble over. And Jesus made it very plain that those five books of Moses were true and inspired by God down to the very points and dashes. Later on in Matthew chapter 23, as he's talking to the Jews, the Pharisees in particular, he's saying to them, uh, you are the ones who always kill the prophets. And the, and the Scriptures are testifying against you from the blood of righteous Abel until Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the door of the temple. Now, the interesting thing about those two illustrations is this. You remember I told you just a moment ago that the Hebrew Scriptures are divided into three main parts. 
the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And in the organization of the Hebrew Scriptures, while their Old Testament contains exactly the same books as our Old Testament, the 39 books of our Old Testament, they're arranged a little bit differently. They're in a different order. The law is first, and Genesis is the same place it is in our Bible at the beginning. But in their Bible, Malachi does not end the Old Testament writings. Chronicles does. And the story of Zechariah and his murder is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, right at the end of their Old Testament Scripture. In other words, Jesus is bracketing the testimony of the entire writings of what we have as our 39 books of the Old Testament, from Genesis all the way through Malachi. For them, it was Genesis all the way through Second Chronicles. All Scripture is inspired by God. There is no question, and I didn't have the opportunity to do that this week because I didn't discover this particular book until last night. But I was reading and, and I had a footnote reference. you got to love uh, Kindle and, uh, you know, Kindle Online, because I was able to go and buy a book and get it instantly sitting at my dining table. That's kind of cool. But anyway, I got a reference to this book, and I uh, got it online and downloaded it to my Kindle, and I was reading it, and I thought, I need to make some copies of a couple of pages here for our people. So I'll do that for you next week. It gives a listing of all the references with the verses that Jesus makes to the Scriptures and also that New Testament writers make to the Scriptures so that you can read these verses for yourself. But there's no question in my mind that Jesus and the New Testament writers believed that every single word in the entire Old Testament was inspired by God and absolutely true, not just regarding faith and salvation, but all of the historical narrative and every reference that might have anything to do with, it, with the science. In fact, if you read them carefully, you find that certain events are used for illustration in the New Testament with no explanation, the assumption that they are factually true. Events like Adam and Eve, and Cain and Abel, and Noah, and the ark, and the flood, and Moses, and crossing the Red Sea, and Jonah uh, being swallowed by the great fish and many other illustrations from the Old Testament that are quoted in the New without a hint that they might be a fable or just an allegory, but they're spoken of as if they are literally true. There's no question that Jesus affirmed 
the entire Old Testament. But today we have to recognize that the Scripture itself is under attack. And, and friends, why I'm belaboring this point this morning is this. If the Bible is essential for our spiritual development, we must have confidence in its teaching. If you don't believe it, first of all, you're not going to be very compelled to pay attention to it. And secondly, when you do read it, you're going to be willing to take what you like and throw away what you don't. Unless we are convinced in our heart that all of Scripture is true. And it is a very different thing to believe the Scripture and know that you're being disobedient than it is to disbelieve the Scripture and justify your behavior which is wrong. Those are very different things. Because at least if you believe the Scripture, the Holy Spirit has something with which to work in building Christ's character into your life. But if you deny the Scripture and rationalize your behavior, then you've basically shut yourself up from God's influence in your life in those realms. There is question today, not in the liberal side of the church, but in the evangelical camp about the veracity, the truthfulness of the Scriptures. There's question. It's being questioned by Bible scholars of evangelical background. And the truthfulness of Scripture is being questioned by some of you. I know that because I hear things that belie or betray an underlying philosophy that is in error. And it is my responsibility to speak the truth to you, to, to call you to reason and to account, to get you to engage. I, I, you know, and frankly, I'd rather have you argue with me than sit there and ignore me. Make an appointment and come duke it out. But, but don't just sit there and tune me out. <laughs> because it's crucially important. Not only for the honor and glory of God, but it's crucially important for your own happiness and your success as a person. God said to Joshua, the captain of the host of the Lord, as he was about to take over the leadership from Moses and enter the promised land, he said, Joshua, I want to give you a bit of advice. Well, actually, that's not what he said. He said, Joshua, I have a commandment for you. God usually doesn't give advice. He usually tells you what to do. 
And what he said was, this book of the law, oh, there's that law again, Genesis to Deuteronomy. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then, and here's the so that, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. I'm obviously not going to get there this morning because they have three minutes left. I didn't finish on time in the first hour either, by the way. But I'm going to spend time in the next couple of weeks talking about the other words in Second Timothy 3.16. The Scripture is good for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. And I'm going to talk about all the different ways that the Bible applies to life in practical terms. And you may be surprised that it has a lot more to say than just how to be born again. It has counsel and wisdom in all realms of life. And if you believe it and follow it, you will make your way prosperous and you'll have good success. I'm not talking about just materialistically. I'm talking about in the true core value and meaning of life. You'll be able to come to the end of your days and say, I have lived well. I have run my race. I have finished the course. And there is laid up for me now a crown. And to hear the Lord Jesus say, Well done, my good and faithful servant, to truly live appropriately and find the blessing that God brings in your life as a consequence of it. It will spare you a great deal of trouble. But many people today doubt the Scriptures. Here's some of their arguments. The Bible contains the Word of God. You know the problem with that? We have a true-false test that we give to our candidates for ordination. I mean, it's much more than a true-false, but there's two pages of true-false statements. Circle TRF. And one of them, or actually two of them, are these statements. The Bible contains the Word of God, true or false? Well, it's false in the absolute sense. The Bible is the Word of God. The meaning behind this one is the Bible contains the Word of God and a lot of other junk as well. In other words, and I had a book like this in my first year of college. It wasn't at Tekoa, by the way demythologizing the New Testament. In other words, separating the truth from the myth and the fancy stories. And the idea was to try to find what was really real in the midst of all that other junk. The Bible contains the Word of God. Another statement that is false is the Bible becomes the Word of God when we read it. 
These people who espouse this view do not believe that the words themselves are the Word of God. But they believe there's value and merit in reading the Bible because when you read it, you have an experience with God where He may talk to you and show you something about your life. People who do that are probably the kind of folks that have their Bible reading like this. They close their eyes in the morning and open to a random page and put their finger on the page and see, what does this verse uh, have for me this morning? Ah, men who oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. Well, maybe that's appropriate. But they just simply look for some kind of inspiration when they read, but they don't believe that the, the sentences, the grammar, the meaning of the text has anything to do with inspiration. Some people say only the concepts were inspired. The authors chose the words and illustrations. Have you ever had a thought without words? Have you ever had a concept that you had no words for that could not be expressed in writing? I mean, think about that for a moment. We think with words. We think in our language. In fact, you think most likely in your heart language. When you're alone and in your deepest thoughts, probably the language in your mind is the one you started out with as a child. Can you imagine how God could inspire concepts and not give people any words? The idea is that he just gave them the general idea and they added their own illustrations and they had their cultural blinders on and they had their silly notions and bad science and all of that kind of stuff. Some say that God accommodated himself to the culture. In fact, this is probably the most popular opposition to inspiration today, that God accommodated Himself to the culture and the times of the writers. A little while back, I was absolutely shocked. I ran into a friend of mine who's a retired pastor. He preached for over... 40 years, probably closer to 50 years, as an evangelical Bible-preaching pastor. Happened to be reading an article about the election of the new Pope. I don't think they call it an election, but it's something like that. And in the process of the article, it was talking about Vatican II and some of the, uh, the edicts that were adopted at that particular council and along with that, um, there was discussion about evolution and, and the Old Testament. And you may or may not realize this, but the Catholic Church has officially adopted evolution as the method that God used to um, create the universe. 
And they've done that because at Vatican II, they determined a new statement of biblical inspiration stating essentially, I've got the quote, but I don't have time to read it, stating essentially that the Bible is only without error in matters of salvation. And all the rest of it is up for grabs. What really shocked me was this man with whom I was speaking said, you know, I like that. I think that we need to uh, come into the scientific era and recognize that God spoke to the people of that time in ideas they could understand. But we have learned much more through scientific investigation and we need to be willing to change our minds about these theories of origin. I was astounded. This was not a man who by any stretch of the imagination in conventional thinking could be termed liberal. And yet, his own belief was that the Bible had accommodated itself to the culture of the day. And yet the scripture says it is impossible for God to lie. Do we realize what we're saying when we say that God was not able to keep error from creeping into the inspired text? We're in essence saying that God is limited by human understanding. And that He's not capable of inspiring the very people He made. That's like saying a watchmaker has no idea how to repair the watch. Because he doesn't know how it operates. It's patently ridiculous. And furthermore, if we say that... God allowed human error to creep into the Scriptures, who is going to figure out what part is true and what part is error? It's going to have to be you. And when you take that approach to Scripture, guess who becomes the final authority on truth? You do. You decide what's valid and what's invalid. You become the final authority. You have elevated reason above the transcendence of God. And in essence, what humanism and rationalism does is it makes man God. Because we become the highest authority. The problem with that is, as the popular saying goes, everyone has to find their own truth. You don't have to think more than a couple of minutes if you've got an ounce of common sense 
to realize what happens when two people come to diametrically opposed viewpoints. Are they both true? Can something be black and white at exactly the same time? According to the popular thinking, they could, because there is no true truth. In other words, what you end up with, as one person has said, is both feet planted firmly in midair. You really have no foundation. You have no basis. You're relying on reason which is subject in every case to preconceived ideas, values, and theories of your own making that prejudice anyone moving into the scientific realm. Rationalists, for example, by very definition, claim that metaphysics has nothing to do with their process. Metaphysics is that spiritual realm, the realm where God is, the realm where the supernatural is, the realm where eternal life is. And when they say that, they are saying that God has to be left outside the laboratory and we're only going to deal with data that we can observe that's concrete, materialistic, and testable. And already prejudice has been introduced. What if the answer is God? But he has already been decreed not relevant by an assumption at the very outset. Friends, we have to make a choice. You can't have it both ways. You cannot have part of the Scripture and throw away the rest. You can't take what you like and ignore what you don't like. Either God is God and His Word is true, or truth is entirely up to you. That's really the only choice that you have. And you must recognize that if you decide the truth is up to you, you're not smart enough to figure it out. So frankly, you will never know the truth. And you will spend your life adrift, tossed here and there by every wind and wave of teaching, by trickery and the craftiness of men, and deceitful scheming, and you'll be subject to the latest fads and the coolest new ideas, and you'll be left adrift in life. It's not going to leave you in a very good place. You have to make a decision. It's all or nothing. The Bible is our final rule and authority. Not only for all of faith, but for all of life. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to dive into that a little more deeply. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts to recognize that we do have a choice to make. 
We have to get off the fence. We can't play both sides against the middle and hope to come out okay. We have to decide. And Father, I pray that we would recognize the consequence of our conviction and have the courage to be honest about it. Lead us most particularly to the rock that is higher than we are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.